The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. Here we are, week three of our look at Chekhov's plays. Today we have Three Sisters, written in 1899 and 1900 and produced, first produced in 1901, once again in the hands of the Moscow Art Theater, including Stanislavski, Namirovich Danchenko, and Olga Nipper. Chekhov's great love. In some ways, it's a simple story. Three sisters live in a provincial capital where the only real excitement is brought in by the soldiers stationed there and the chance to meet them. The sisters are educated, perhaps overeducated. They seem to think so anyway. And they're aristocratic, but they long to work and find some kind of meaning in their lives. And they long to go to Moscow, but don't go. And one of the sisters is married but unhappily, and another is a school teacher, but doesn't love it, and then she gets promoted, a job she didn't really want, and the youngest sister longs for work to give her meaning, but immediately hates her job at the telegraph office for not being the right kind of work. Their father has died a year ago, leaving their brother in a position as the head of the family, but although they adore him, he lets them down. He marries poorly and gambles, and eventually he mortgages their house to pay off his debts, extinguishing all their dreams. It's the kind of play full of ideals, philosophical statements, and people trying to get places but not being able to start. One of the leading soldiers talks about optimism in terms of humanity improving in a thousand years. Is that optimistic? But what is it? if it isn't optimistic. I could summarize the plot, and maybe I'll do that a little bit later, but the plot isn't really the point here, and it's not a short story come to life because it doesn't have that unity or singularity of purpose either. It's more like a novel, except I'm not sure Chekhov could have really written a compelling novel. Well, Chekhov, <laughs> my hero, probably could have, but it wouldn't be suspenseful, I don't think. It just doesn't seem to be how his mind worked. In the longer form, we start to see his own imaginative idea of suspense taking over. His idea of suspense is to add layers of complexity to characters, to probe deeper into their humanity. While nothing much happens, it's not an easy play to get our minds around. Here's Raymond Carver when asked who his influences are. He said, quote, Years ago, I read something in a letter by Chekhov that impressed me. It was a piece of advice to one of his many correspondents, and it went something like this. Friend, you don't have to write about extraordinary people who accomplish extraordinary and memorable deeds. Reading what Chekhov had to say in that letter, and in other letters of his as well, and reading his stories, made me see things differently than I had before. End quote. Carver said Chekhov was the writer whose work he most admired, but he added... I'm talking about his stories now, not the plays. His plays move too slowly for me. And here's one. Here's a, a quote from the great Eudora Welty. We're going to have to do a show on her soon. Eudora Welty says, quote, I love and admire all Jane Austen does and profoundly, but I don't read her or anyone else for kindredness. Chekhov, I do dare to think, is more kindred. I feel closer to him in spirit. Chekhov is one of us. So close to today's world, to my mind, and very close to the South. 
He loved the singularity in people, the individuality. He took for granted the sense of family. He had the sense of fate overtaking a way of life, and his Russian humor seems to me kin to the humor of a Southerner. It's the kind that lies mostly in character. You know, in Uncle Vanya, in the cherry orchard, how people are always gathered together and talking and talking. No one's really listening. Yet there's a great love and understanding that prevails through it, and a knowledge and acceptance of each other's idiosyncrasies, a tolerance of them, and also an acute enjoyment of the dramatic. Like in The Three Sisters, when the fire is going on, how they talk right on through their exhaustion. And Vershinin says, I feel a strange excitement in the air, and laughs and sings and talks about the future. That kind of responsiveness to the world, to whatever happens out of their own deeps of, dis- of character, seems very Southern to me. Anyway, I took a temperamental delight in Chekhov, and gradually the connection was borne in upon me. End quote. And finally, here's a quote from the great playwright Tennessee Williams, another person we need to do a show on soon. Quote, D.H. Lawrence was the only one who realized how serious life was, and his writing, which is honest about it, seems grotesque. Chekhov knew, but also knew it would be grotesque if you tried to say it. So there was always the beautiful incompletion, the illusion and delicacy which Lawrence lost, with a sense of a deeper knowledge under it all. End quote. Would be grotesque if you tried to say it. The seriousness of life would be grotesque if you tried to say it. And yet, Chekhov doesn't turn away from it. That's the key. These aren't people with duct tape over their mouths, hopelessly muted. There isn't anger in Chekhov. It's not railing against the universe for being meaningless. It's a little hard to define. It's delicate. It's underneath. But we will do our best here today. There's a famous story about Chekhov that he was visited by some people one day and the talk turned to politics or philosophy or some deep, meaningful thing, some some current affairs, something of the day, and everyone had their opinion. And finally, they turned to Chekhov and asked him to weigh in. And he said, I like chocolates, don't you? It's hard to understand Chekhov sometimes, but not because he's so hard to understand, really, but because he's so difficult to pin down to define. It's that middle ground I talked about last time, that twilight area. Is the twilight daytime? Is it evening? Where are we? Are we grateful for the light, or has the light left us? Are we already watching it go? And yet, even though you can't define that period exactly, just like with Chekhov, it's hard to define the genre or hard to define the theme, Even though you can't define twilight exactly, it's the most beautiful time of the day. Last time I went on a Twitter rant in the last episode, I talked about hating the comments on Twitter and yet loving them too. I need them in a weird way. I'm in deep conflict about the stupidity of humanity, and yet I admire it, I adore it. There's a distinction here that we can draw in kinds of stupidity, right? There's... There's malevolent stupidity. There's normal average person stupidity. It makes me think I should probably go back to Robert Musil because he was all over this. 
right? The man without qualities, that guy. The difference between intelligent stupidity, which is a kind of refusal to see reality. That's the dangerous kind. An unwillingness to accept the truth. A use of stupidity to gaslight others and to take from others and to live a very hypocritical life. I'm not going to get into politics here, but the intelligent stupidity might be associated with certain politicians who say things they know aren't true because it's useful to them. And maybe they even come to believe the falsity. Whole news networks can fall into this. I say fall, even though it might be intentional. They can promote intelligent stupidity. They can rely on it to get the people to think what they want them to think. And then there's honorable stupidity. That's the kind of Chekhov and his visitors who are trying to make conversation. They had honorable stupidity, those people. That's all of us who talk about this and that in the news, the policies, what should be done, how things should change, what we all should be doing differently, what the world needs, and so on. It's the dilettante's view of what the experts have wrestled with for decades and in depth. And we just flit above it all, and then we say things like, we should really get the Israelis and Palestinians in a room and tell them not to come out until they've worked out a deal. Or, nothing's going to save the planet until we decide we want to change. Or, what the nonprofits should do is to focus on their goals and less on their overhead. Spend less on salaries. You see this with the coronavirus. People who say, well, how do they know if a person really died from coronavirus? Maybe they had a heart attack and died from that. So how do we trust these statistics? And doctors pull out their hair and say, do you think this is the first time we've been asked to determine cause of death? Do you think we don't have a whole system for determining cause of death? This is not something new to us people. We know how to do this. We have, <laughs> do, you think, do you think we're brand new just because you are? There's an interpretation of Three Sisters that's all about this stupidity, the distinctions in stupidity. You could say that the sisters have a kind of honorable stupidity. And maybe Natasha, their new sister-in-law, who marries their beloved brother and who becomes kind of a villain in the play, sort of a villain, you could say she has intelligent stupidity. Somehow, we have to interpret the play. We have to figure out some way of pinning things down, even though I would say you don't necessarily have to. You can enjoy the ambiguity because when you go to see a play, you can recognize and admire what that particular production is trying to do. You can see that they make choices. Oh, they're pushing things one way. They're playing up another aspect of this. That's an intelligent way to watch a play. But if you're going to stage it, or if you're a reader who's just trying to find the meaning in it, and you, you need definitions to be clear, you have to interpret it. Chekhov himself described this villain, Natasha, in a letter, or he didn't describe her. He suggested that she should hold a candle like Lady Macbeth. That was his suggestion. Kind of a stage suggestion, a way that he thought might be more striking. Oh, 
have her come in holding a candle like Lady Macbeth, and people have run with that. He compared her with Lady Macbeth. Maybe she's a villain. Maybe we should emphasize that she's <laughs> a ruthless, ambitious villain. Others read the text and say, no, this isn't about her being a villain, preying upon these people. My goodness, this is about every bit of hope being being extinguished. I say distinguished. Every bit of hope is first distinguished and then extinguished. The sisters want desperately to go to Moscow and they never get there. There are tears everywhere and laughter too. And so the, the directors ignore the humor the undermining that happens, the, the comedy of the lines, and they focus on the despair and the anguish and the futility, and the play gets gloomy. One critic went to see an adaptation and said, quote, this is bullet in the back of the neck Chekhov. Three and a half hours of full throttle, futility, and hopelessness, end quote. Hmm. It can be bleak like that if you stage it that way. Michael Frayn said, quote, and really the whole structure of the play is designed to undercut Vershinin, who's the optimist in the play. He insists that life is always becoming steadily easier and brighter. But more than three years go by in the course of the play and nothing changes. Not at any rate for the better. Nothing even begins to change. End quote. Stanislavski. Remember from our previous discussions how the famous Stanislavski of the Moscow Art Theater was a great interpreter of Chekhov. By great, I don't mean he was good at it. I mean he was important. Even though he was kind of given that, history put him in that situation, even though he doesn't seem to have understood Chekhov very well. Again and again, we see that the other founder of the Moscow Art Theater, Namirovich Danchenko, understood Chekhov better. In some ways, though, Chekhov and Stanislavski did have similar aims and goals. They had a view of the theater as a place for something other than great declamatory acting or over-the-top melodrama. They certainly fueled one another's careers, but they didn't necessarily see eye-to-eye on the individual plays or the characters or the purpose of the play, the themes. Three Sisters was the first play that Chekhov wrote specifically for the Moscow Art Theater, and he was involved in the pre-production. He attended an early reading, and he was furious. Stanislavski said, quote, After the reading of the play, some of us, t- talking of our impressions of the play, called it a drama, and others even a tragedy, without noticing that these definitions amazed Chekhov. End quote. Years later, Stanislavski recalled that he afterwards he went to Chekhov's hotel and, quote, I do not remember ever seeing him so angry again. But the real reason for Chekhov's anger was that he had written a happy comedy, and all of us had considered the play a tragedy and even wept over it. Evidently, Chekhov thought that the play had been misunderstood and that it was already a failure, end quote. A happy comedy? A tragedy weeping over it. It's not at all clear that Stanislavski isn't just exaggerating this incident years later. It's not likely that Chekhov saw it as a happy comedy. He himself called it a drama. 
He compared it with a novel in a letter he wrote, Three Sisters is finished. The play has turned out dull, protracted, and awkward. I, I say awkward because, for instance, it has four heroines and a mood, as they say, gloomier than gloom itself. My play is complex like a novel, and its mood, people say, is murderous. End quote. And so we see the problem for a director. If you play it for laughs, you can miss the drama or the tragedy. If you play it as lugubrious, you can miss the lightheartedness. How do you get the balance? Perfect Twilight might only be a few minutes long. And if genre is a problem, theme is even worse. What is the play about? We can say it's about life as it really is. But what does that mean? Does it mean that life is absurd? Is this Samuel Beckett waiting for Moscow? It might be related. It might be an inspiration for Beckett, but it's not exactly the same. Beckett was writing after the Holocaust and had a much bleaker outlook on life. Beckett was deeply pessimistic in a way that Chekhov isn't. On the other hand, Bolsheviks pointed to three sisters and said, He was foreseeing the glories of the revolution. Chekhov was predicting, with hope, exactly what we brought about. And they point to a character in Three Sisters in a speech that says, quote, The time has come. Now remember, this is 1901 that this is being produced. And the character in the play says, quote, The time has come. An avalanche is moving down on us and a great storm's brewing that'll do us all a power of good. It's practically on top of us already and soon it's going to blast out of our society all the laziness, complacency, contempt for work, rottenness, and boredom. I'm going to work and in 25 or 30 years' time, everyone will work. Everyone. End quote. You can see where the Bolsheviks thought That sounds like us. These provincial aristocrats were just waiting for the meaning in life that we provided. But so much in the play undercuts that view. That if we just select that quote, we're not getting at the meaning either. It distorts the play's meaning to suit the Bolsheviks that way, as critics quickly pointed out. So, What is it? Hope for the future or despair for the present? There's a great story. I wish I could find it, but it's hard to search. I know I heard it somewhere. The story is that the Beatles were writing a song and George Martin was writing it down because the Beatles couldn't read music, let alone write it. And he said to George Harrison, George, is that note supposed to be an A or an A flat? I'm not sure if those were the two notes, but it was two notes separated by a half-step. And George thought for a minute, listened for a minute, then he said, it's in the middle of those. And George Martin said, ah, you're right, it is. What am I supposed to do with this now? And Harrison said, that's the beauty of music. That's why I love music. Because there's a note in the middle. And of course there is. If you sing like a siren, if you make your voice move like a siren from low to high, high to low, 
you'll cover gradations of notes. There will be a note that's in the middle of A and A flat. You'll cover that with your voice. It exists even if we don't always think of it because we're trained to think in terms of the Western scale. Sometimes art lives in the middle, in the gap, in the flicker, as our lives do. We're going to explore such a gap today on the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join me today. It's Christmas Eve. You all know how sentimental I get at Christmas, and yet I feel conflicted about it. I know that some people cringe at the sound of music, for example, and yet I embrace it. But I cringe even as I'm embracing it. We have a word for it in Christmas movies, or a phrase. Here's Mr. Potter. Sentimental hogwash. There we go. Sentimental hogwash. I love Potter. He's one of my favorite characters in the movie, in all of movies, really. But I hate him, too, of course. What a villain. What an absolute jerk. My boys gasp when they see him open up that newspaper and see that he's got the money that Uncle Billy is so desperate to find. And it's going to mean prison for one or the other. It's not going to be George. <laughs> we know it will be George, right? That's the story of George's life. He'll go to jail for it because Billy will be sick or something or won't be able to handle it. George will take the fall. We know that's going to happen, and Potter's going to just sit there and let it happen. Oh, my boys gasp at how evil that is. And yet, my boys and I giggle at Potter's lines, too. They're so funny. He's outrageously funny. Even as he's tragic himself and spoils everything around him. He's a detestable villain, and yet he's so well-drawn. I admire him. He's so well-acted. He's so perfect. And it's not just that I like it, his character artistically. I kind of like his spirit, too, his commitment to being bad. He's so unabashedly villainous. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. <laughs> George says that. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. And Potter says, Happy New Year to you in jail. <laughs> My kids and I laughed out loud. Spiders got a spider. That's what we need with Chekhov. To balance this, to balance these conflicting feelings. How can such a great writer be so misinterpreted? How can we love his plays even as they don't move anywhere, as Carver complained? And it's easier to criticize the interpretation than it is to get one right. Remember that when you watch a version of it or when you read a version Read about a version of it. The director had to make choices, and they were not easy. It's not easy to stay in the middle on everything. And so when the critic says, oh, this isn't funny enough, or this is too funny, think about how hard it was for the director to get that right square in the middle, because on the page you can kind of read it, and in your mind you can kind of play both at once. And Chekhov seems to have thought that the 
actors and the directors could do that too. It's not always easy. You have to make choices. So we will explore that and I'll have some thoughts along with a listener email coming up after this break. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here's an email from George, a good Christmas name like George Bailey. Subject, thanks from London. Hi, Jack. want to thank you for an excellent podcast. I'm 30 and live in London. I started reading literature consistently, albeit at what seems a slow pace in retrospect, after graduating from university. But your show has transformed the experience. After searching for a good literature podcast for some time, I discovered yours earlier this year, possibly as lockdown in the UK was commencing, and you've already introduced me to a host of fantastic authors, Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, D.H. Lawrence, Sons and Lovers, George Eliot, Silas Marner, Emily Bronte, Wuthering Heights, and Thomas Hardy, the mayor of Casterbridge, among them. On Mike's recommendation to tackle a vast work, I'm 200 pages into The Brothers Karamazov, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm already looking forward to listening to your episode dedicated to the book on completing it. Mm. Let me pause there. (laughs) I should warn you, George, I think that episode, I think it might be one of our best episodes. It's up there. It's also one of the saddest. I had a friend... A very good friend tell me that he listened to it and has been reading Dostoevsky ever since, and he isn't sure when he can come back to the podcast. I told him that when he does come back, to listen to the episode with Robin Lithgow as a palate cleanser, which was more optimistic, I think. Okay, back to the email. George says, Towards the top of my list to read next are Middlemarch, The Rainbow, Jude the Obscure, The Metamorphosis, Anna Karenina, and Tender is the Night. If only I weren't required to work all day. Hmm. Let me pause again. George, that is a great list. (laughs) That's a great list. You are four, five, six for six with that list. I hope you enjoy. Okay, back to the email. Anyway, 
George says. Aside from introducing me to new authors and books, you've taught me how to read better, how to think about reading, and why I'm enjoying a book or not, the importance of context and the historical significance of books. Overall, I'm enjoying the experience more and getting more from it. I've heard you mention a couple of times that you've failed at so many things in your life. Sorry about that, loser. Sucks to be you. No. (laughs) No. George's email doesn't say that. I added that part. Let me start the paragraph over. George says, I've heard you mention a couple of times that you've failed at so many things in your life. Well, that may be so. But you've done something brilliant with this podcast, and I, as I'm sure countless others are, am extremely grateful. Enjoy your coffee and keep up the great work. Cheers, George. Oh, George, cheers to you. Thank you so much for this simple act of kindness. Thank you for the coffee which you purchased through historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy a virtual coffee there. And thank you for the email telling me that I've been making something that you've been enjoying. It's so easy to tear things down, isn't it? It must be the easiest thing of all to do, because so many people do it so often. They, we, do it all day long. It's as easy and as effortless as breathing. It's much harder to build things, isn't it? Much harder to build them up. But let's make that our goal for 21. 2021, shall we? Look for ways to build as well as destroy. If someone is, I'm like, I'm like a little kid building a sandcastle. That's how I feel, even though I'm basically an old man. We, we all are, aren't we? Aren't we just little kids building a sandcastle? I haven't built a sandcastle in years, and where I grew up, there weren't really waves, so there wasn't really a beach. But set that aside. At heart, I, like you, am a kid on a beach building a sandcastle. I'm spending a lot of time doing this. This is how I'm spending my afternoon. I'm trying to make it as good as I can, given my limited abilities. And you, the reviewer, the listener, the critic, whoever you are, you're on the beach too. Now, we both know what will happen to this sandcastle. The waves are going to come and sweep the beach clean, and my sandcastle will disappear, maybe in an hour or two, maybe overnight. In the meantime, it's not going to hurt anyone. And maybe it's going to bring a smile or two to the faces of people passing by. So that's me, Jack Wilson, vulnerable builder of sandcastles. What will you do, dear listener? What will you do with your time this year? Do you want to find a spot on the beach and build a sandcastle of your own? Maybe that's a podcast you want to do. Maybe it's the book you want to write. Maybe it's the job you're hoping to get or the relationship you should be in or the person you know you should be. Maybe that's your sandcastle. Maybe it's being a reader and a kind and generous person like George. But you will have a sandcastle, and you and I can look at one another and smile. We have our space. There's room for us here on this beach. We each have our thing. Do you want to do that, dear listener? Or do you want to be the bully who runs in and kicks down my sandcastle and stomps all over it and says it wasn't any good anyway? 
your castle, or who cares, or I thought it made the beach ugly. I thought the world would be better if nobody had to look at your sandcastle. Now, stepping aside, getting this outside of the world of Jack Wilson and his humble little podcast. Think about the people around you and the sandcastles they'd like to build. Let's say they bother you, they irritate you. This effort, what these people are trying to accomplish. Ugh. It's wrongheaded. It's misthought. It's a waste of time. It's unbearably earnest. Well, is it really better to go and kick down their sandcastle and stroll away like a big shot? I showed them how stupid that was. Or is it better to keep walking? Go find your own little spot on the beach and work on building yourself the best castle that you can build. I know where I'll be in 2021. You might be somewhere else. But I know where I'll be. One more quick break, and back with more about Chekhov. The story goes that Chekhov drew upon his experience on holiday years before the 1880s when he met three sisters living in a provincial town. They were intellectual and charming, and two were doctors, and the third, the eldest, was blind from a brain tumor. Chekhov rented a nearby estate next to theirs and got to know the three, including a close-up view of the affairs that they were having. Here's a summary of the play from Benet's Reader's Encyclopedia. Quote, written in four acts, Anton Chekhov's play Three Sisters is regarded by some critics as the best drama of the 20th century. The Prozorov sisters, Olga, Masha, and Irina, along with their brother Andre, drag out a dull existence in a small provincial garrison town. Only the diversion afforded by the officers and the ever-present dream of someday moving to Moscow keep the sisters going from one drab day to the next. Andre, who has had dreams of becoming a professor, makes a bad marriage that thwarts his ambition and adds to his sister's troubles. His wife, Natalia, becomes a domestic despot. Masha, who is married to the pedantic schoolmaster, Kuligin, tries to find happiness in a love affair with the officer, Vershinin. The youngest sister, Irina, attempts to escape the drabness of her life by marrying Baron Tusenbach, another officer. The removal of the regiment from the town undoes Masha's plan because Vershinin is married and cannot take her with him. Tusenbach is killed in a duel. The three sisters are left as they were in the beginning, deriving some faint pleasure from the cheerful sounds of the regimental band as it marches away, still clinging to their hopes for a better life. End quote. That sounds like a play packed with action, doesn't it? It's not like that. Almost every description of Three Sisters, including its initial reception, is one of befuddlement, puzzlement. The reception of audiences has been as confused as the conflicting interpretations. 
of the directors. Stanislavski claimed after his production that after Act One, there were 12 curtain calls as the audience exploded into applause, but that after Act Four, there was only one curtain call and it was half-hearted. <laughs> as confusion settled in, they were stunned. Chekhov thought only Olga Nipper truly got the part of the initial actors. He objected to Stanislavski's exuberant interpretation. Early critics also thought, well, why don't the girls just go to Moscow? They have money. They have time. They want to go. What's stopping them? Eventually, the critics figured out the point. This wasn't just an oversight on the part of the author. It was intentional. Moscow is like a mirage for them, like a far-off place that can't be reached. And it's their own inability to act, their own inability to take the first steps, to take them there, to go on that journey. It's their own, something in them is preventing them from achieving that goal. The lack of motivation isn't a flaw, but a new dramatic method. Not all the critics were baffled. The writer Gorky loved the play from the start. He said it was, quote, music, not acting, end quote. I accept the critics who love it. I agree with them. I agree with the critic in 1962 who wrote, quote, The subtle interaction of symbol and reality creates an atmosphere of unusual psychological density. The interaction is made more meaningful through the seemingly disconnected dialogue. The illusion of happiness is the main theme, end quote. Disconnected dialogue. What does that remind you of? How about Chekhov? How about the story I told you? The people who come in with their honorable stupidity talking about politics and Chekhov saying, I like chocolates, don't you? That's disconnected dialogue, right? A non sequitur that is very meaningful. If we look at it in the right light. So I get all the critics who love it. I get the the view that it might be the greatest play of the 20th century. I'm kind of on board with that. And at the same time, I have some sympathy with Raymond Carver, too. <laughs> If the plays are slow-moving, this might be the most slow-moving of all four of the plays we're going to look at with Chekhov. Maybe it's the richest. Maybe it's the densest. Maybe it's also the most frustrating. And maybe that's for similar reasons. I'm not sure Three Sisters is as effective as The Seagull or Uncle Vanya. It's beautiful. It's deep. It's full of wonders. And I'm not sure that I would... Mount a production if I had to count on the box office. It can be a hard play to watch. It can be kind of inert. It doesn't exactly build. It deepens more than it moves. Chekhov himself said this one is going to be, quote, more difficult than the earlier plays, end quote. And he observed, quote, I am writing not a play, but some kind of maze. Lots of characters. It may be that I lose my way and give up writing, end quote. And yet, there's always an and yet. I love the way the sisters are in the provinces longing for Moscow. There's something beautiful about that. Something that really hits home for me. This is Bedford Falls, right? Longing for the big city. It's how I grew up. Chekhov himself grew up in a similar town, of course. When he returned to it as an adult, he thought, the people are stuck here. They are just stuck here. It's full of nostalgia for Chekhov, that town was, but for the people who live there, it was a trap. I've spent time in capital cities, New York, D.C. 
I've spent time in provincial capitals. Once when I was living in Michigan, I went to visit some friends who were living in Manhattan, Mike Palindrome and some others. And I can remember that some people were complaining about the traffic. And I said, well, of course, there's a summit at the UN today. That's what's causing it. And I was all read up on the UN summit. I had been reading all about it in the New York Times, which I got in Michigan. I was highly informed. I knew what the agenda was, what was likely to be accomplished, and what wasn't. And my friends weren't even reading the newspaper. They were in New York, but they didn't read the New York Times. They didn't have time. And this friend of mine said that, honestly, she didn't feel like she needed to watch the news or read the newspapers because she walked past the United Nations every day on the way to work. And she just kind of picked everything up she needed. She was at the center of the action, not just with the United Nations, but with media and publishing and all the movers and shakers who live in New York. And I realized that she didn't know anything about the actual policies that were being made inside the that building. Anything about the agreements that were being wrangled over and forged, but she was near it. And for her, that was enough. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought her view was was ridiculous. And yet, we both were ridiculous, weren't we? I was highly informed, but I wasn't doing anything. I was as outside the loop as she was in her self-deluded bubble, that she was up on things just by being close to them, by walking on the sidewalk past the building. And Chekhov would probably say, sure, she was in her bubble of self-delusion, but so were you, Jack. You were in a bubble of self-delusion as well, thinking that your understanding of what was going on inside that building mattered. (laughs) Because it didn't. And you know what? Chekhov would probably even say that the people inside the UN, they were mostly in their own self-deluded bubbles. Not really changing anything either. And don't you like chocolates? I do. I told you my Twitter story last time, how I hated the way people responded to the stalactites and the stalagmites, and yet I value Twitter commentary too. I value the way people chime in, even as I hate the way they do sometimes, and what's the alternative? That's the point. What's the alternative? To do nothing? To disengage completely? That's not satisfactory either. I'll give you another example. There was this great satirical story in The Onion right before the election. The headline was, Woman Hopes She Did Enough Worrying to Help Biden Campaign. (laughs) The headline really says it all. Woman Hopes She Did Enough Worrying to Help Biden Campaign. But since we're going with this, the story is good too. Erie, Pennsylvania. Waiting on tenterhooks on the eve of the election, Local woman Elise Stalter expressed her hope Monday that she had done enough worrying to help the Biden presidential campaign. Quote, I've been panicking pretty much every day for the last few months, but now that there's only one day left, I wonder if I could have done more, end quote, said Stalter, admitting that while she had regularly taken to the streets to collapse in a puddle of despair, she couldn't shake the feeling that she could have gone even further with her mental breakdown. I've been sending out texts telling everyone I know that I'm constantly on the verge of a full-blown anxiety attack, and I've spent hundreds of dollars supporting a variety of self-soothing products. Now I just pray that I've experienced enough existential dread to make a difference. At press time, 
Stalter consoled herself that she still had almost a full day to slip into a catatonic state. It's the end of the article. That's Chekhov, too. We worry so that we worry. We worry about the extent to which we worried. We worry because we're involved. We worry because it's something to do. It's a response. And yet, our worry does absolutely nothing. We get nothing accomplished, but we worry. We feel like we're doing something, but we're not. We stop ourselves from getting it done somehow. Not because people aren't suffering, but because we are mostly insignificant and ridiculous. And our actions never have the results that we intend. Even the powerful among us are mostly insignificant and ridiculous. So where does that leave us? If you're an artist trying to, buy, trying to write about life, if you believe your goal, if that's your goal is to write about life as it is, why would you make up meaning that isn't there? And if you're an artist writing about life and you have this woman, this woman I just told you about who's worried about the that she hasn't done enough worrying to help the Biden presidential. I mean, she hasn't been on the phone calling people. She hasn't been knocking on doors, turning out the vote. She hasn't volunteered to work for the Biden campaign or the party or even to be a poll watcher, anything. She's just been worried. That's the joke. There were a lot of people like that in the last election. Would you say that this woman, would you say that that experience, that aspect of her life is comic? Or tragic. In the hands of the onion, it's comic. But there's something tragic about it as well, right? You could stage a version of her collapse as an awful thing. You could look at the time she spent worrying and think, that was a waste. That was a waste of hours and hours of a precious human life. It did nothing for anyone. I'll give you another story. A woman walks into a church She's elderly and desperately poor. She has almost no money. The church is beautiful, elaborate, ornate. It's the biggest structure in this city. It's lined with gold and it's full of priceless artworks. And this elderly woman walks in, drops one of her few remaining coins in an offering box. She's decided that she's not hungry today. And so she wants to help the poor. She wants to help someone who might be hungry. Is that depressing? Do you think she's, you hear that story and think she's a sucker? Do you think she's stupid? You rail against the church, the gaudy church for taking her money. What if I told you that the church didn't do much for the poor? They were going to use the money on new carpets in the offices of the church leaders. Does that, does that donation become a tragedy? Does it become a farce? It's right there on the edge of all that, isn't it? If we change the woman who's worrying about Biden to her, worrying about her daughter's wedding or her daughter's happiness or whether she herself truly enjoys her job as a school teacher, well, suddenly it's not so funny, right? Suddenly we feel like we're in the jaws of despair. Her worry isn't just wasted. It's something a little more. It's more like a cry for help. When the character in Three Sisters talks about humanity improving, 
in hundreds of years or in a thousand years, a thousand years from now, we'll see the difference. What is that? A thousand years to see a recognizable improvement in humanity? Is that optimism? Pessimism? Realism? When we looked at Scrooge last time, we saw how Dickens wanted us not to waste our lives. That's great. But what if we kind of love Scrooge as a miser, too? I love Harry. I love uh, Mr. Potter. I almost said Harry Potter. <laughs> Mr. Potter, the Grinch. I love that they changed the Grinch and Scrooge anyway. But I sort of love their pessimism, too. And what if we don't really believe that a Scrooge will change? Mr. Potter doesn't change. What if we think that Scrooge and the Grinch are nice fairy tales, but not really realistic? What is an artist to do if he doesn't have Dickens's naive gusto for change? Or if an artist knows that his readers or his viewing audience are too wised up to accept it as something meaningful to them, if they think that a change will just be hokey, how ready is an audience today for something sentimental? How much will they listen if they feel like you're tacking on an unrealistic, disney ending? And they say reality is harsher and colder, more grown-up than that. If they just wave their hand at your ending with the villain who changes, whose heart grows, they say, oh, that's for kids. That's not what people really do. Show me something that people really do. And that's where Chekhov comes in. I'm going to dip into the Beatles again because, darn it, this is Christmas. And I have to give myself a present once in a while. So here we go. Listen to this song, Act Naturally. Here's Ringo singing. And listen to Paul singing in the background. It's been said somewhere that when we sing to ourselves, when we sing in the car, when we sing in the shower, Ringo is how we actually sound, and Paul is how we wished we sounded. Here's a taste of that. First, you're going to hear Ringo alone, and then you're going to hear Ringo with Paul, beautiful, angelic voice Paul, chiming in in the background. You can never tell The movie's gonna make me a big star Cause I can play the part so well Well, I hope you come and see me in the movies Then I'll know that you will plainly see The biggest fool that ever hit the big time that fantastic <laughs> and i like both i like both voices i like that both are on this song i like ringo the human the all too human 
the guy with flaws, the botched and bungled, the one who can't win the sad sack. That's me. That's my voice. I sing in the car. It's passable. It's fine. It's not glorious. It's not the voice of a, of a professional angel. <laughs> and I listen to Paul and I admire Paul. I can dream I'm singing like Paul. And yet I do sing like Ringo. And that's okay. And that's the secret of Chekhov. We want to be better. We probably won't be. We want to act. We usually do nothing. We want to be hopeful. We live in despair. It's that tremble between the two. We want to sound like Paul. We do sound like Ringo. But what's the alternative? To be bitter about it, to not sing at all, to not have any ideals, to not admire Paul or appreciate Paul, to just dwell in in our sense of frustration and loss. Ringo's probably the most optimistic person on the planet. He didn't lose the lottery. He won. We all won. We all have benefited from that voice of Paul's. Ringo was right there, right next to it, and he went ahead and sang anyway, because why not? You only get one chance at this, people. Go ahead, tip your head back, open your mouth, and let that voice fly. That Onion article about the woman who worried that she might not have done enough worrying to help the Biden campaign. Is that cause for despair? Do we laugh or cry or do we do both at the same time, one right after the other? They're both there, right? Isn't it awful that she spent her life that way? And yet, isn't it funny that she did too? Chekhov wants to talk about politics and he wants to talk about chocolates. He knows that both are there in us. My friend, I told you about the famous writer who's an atheist, but he likes prayer. He likes the human need the longing, the humility, the appeal for help, the desire to help, the desire to be good. Don't we like that, that this woman is worried so much that she's done all that worrying? Or take our woman in the church, the kind, saintly little old lady. What do we find there? Futility, desperation, and yet we find her hope too, shining through everything. Is her charity, her humility, and her hope, just because the world tramples on it, even if the church wastes it, it doesn't mean that her hope isn't there. We can cling to it, even as we accept that it's not going to solve any problems for anyone. And that's kind of where Chekhov is too. Admire the hope and accept that it's probably hopeless. Act and don't act, and yet... It's not absurd. It's not nihilistic. It's not an angry rant at the universe. Here's George Bailey praying at the bar. This is where he's hit rock bottom. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there... He's lost. He's at the end of his rope. He's in a bad way. This is horrible. And what happens? He gets punched in the face. That's the answer to his prayer until the angel comes. 
And here's George Bailey. And no, I'm not going to jump to the finale, which is the most optimistic I ever get when watching a movie where my chest swells and my tears, my eyes moistened with tears. I'm not going to play the part where he screams Merry Christmas to the town and screams hooray. I think I've done that in the past on this podcast. I'm not going to jump to the very end where he's the richest man in town. Listen just to this part. Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, eight thousand dollars. George, I've got a little paper. I'll right? bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas, report. Oh, there's so much going on in this scene. It's so exciting. There's so many things he's celebrating. It's easy to miss that part. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. That's where we all are, isn't it? Maybe, maybe we're not in such a euphoric place as George Bailey. We're not always in the bar begging for help at rock bottom, and we're not always at the very end where the town comes in to thank us and praise us and our loved ones save the day and our brother declares us the richest man in town. We're in that limbo, that middle ground, that place where the Beatles are when John and Paul are in perfect equipoise, not just their music and their voices, although that too, but their whole outlook on life. It's the twin poles of genius. The Nurk Twins, as they called themselves early on. Did you know that? Before they were famous as the Beatles, the two of them played a gig as the Nurk Twins. But their sensibility here, Paul says, this is a famous story. I'm sure you've heard it. You've probably heard it from me. Paul says, I have, you know, it's okay to repeat myself once in a while, right? Isn't that what a tradition is? <laughs> Look at this as a tradition. Paul says, I have to admit, it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. That's his song. That's as far as he took it. That's all he had to say. That's what he had on his mind. Feeling good. Feeling good about the world. Got to admit, it's getting better. And John weighs in as only John can. Let's listen. You know the end of the story. But let's hear what John drops in there after... Sunshine and rainbows, Paul McCartney gives his version of the world. But he's got to admit, it's getting better all the time. And John chimes in. Getting better all the time. Can't get no worse. What's the viewpoint there? Is it A or is it A flat? It's in the middle. It's what it means to be alive. It's the bittersweet, the sentimental hogwash. It's being excited about going to jail. It's where we all are, in the flicker, in the gap, looking up and looking down, full of inaction, not because it's impossible to do anything, but because we typically don't do anything. And what we do probably doesn't matter anyway, or it doesn't matter enough. And yet, life isn't absurd and meaningless. Our struggle is absurd and meaningful. That's where Chekhov lives. It's where Christmas lives. It's where Twitter is. It's where the Beatles are. It's where George Bailey and Mr. Potter and Scrooge and Tiny Tim are. It's where Frank Capra and Charles Dickens are. All of us are on this spectrum, and it's the woman who worried she didn't worry enough before the election, and it's where that little lady walking into the church is, and it's where I am too. 
Merry Christmas to all of you who celebrated, and a Happy New Year to absolutely all of you. And we all want 2021 to be better than 2020, and chances are it will be worse. And yet there will be people living through it. A lot of living will happen. We'll observe and experience a lot of hope and a lot of despair, which means it will be a year filled with life, which is what we get. And that will be enough. That will be plenty. We will be fortunate to get that much, and we can be happy with it too, as long as we're ready to embrace the underside of happiness as well, the futility of happiness, just like the optimism of desperation and the looking up because you've fallen so far down, the awareness that things are getting better, but only because they can't get any worse. It's the happiest of holidays in the saddest of times, and the spirit of togetherness in the loneliest of days, and the bright pinpoints of hope in the long, dark nights of despair. It's real, it's life, and it's all there in Chekhov. Okay, there we go. My thanks to the Beatles for sneaking in here. How many times? <laughs> At least three. We had to focus on all four Beatles today. George, Ringo, John, and Paul. My apologies for being a dinosaur. I guess it's still Christmasaurus Jack here and Chekhov Jack and Failure Jack. All these Jacks competing for attention. How about the humble and modest Jack? The one who is extremely thankful to you for joining me today and who wishes you and your loved ones the happiest of holiday seasons. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.